All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 this morning. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. It says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Our mission statement here at Union Baptist is that we exist for the glory of God by growing disciples in community. We exist for the glory of God by growing disciples in community. Now, we have preached through that before, and that's not the point of what I'm doing here this morning, uh, but, but just for starters, our lives and certainly our church is to be for the glory of God. Everything that we do is to bring God glory. And we recognize that particularly as a church, uh, the, the, the main way that we bring glory to God is by both we ourselves growing as disciples and then helping and encouraging others uh, to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. But then there's that last little expression there that we grow disciples of Jesus Christ in community. And when we say in community, uh, that, that is an, an expression that is an attempt to articulate really what I think is the inescapable reality that being and growing disciples uh, of Jesus Christ is really a shared experience. The New Testament church is really the essential environment in which disciples of Jesus grow. The New Testament church is the essential environment in which disciples of Jesus grow. That is the case for a couple reasons. First of all, because one of the things that Jesus is doing is working to uh, redeem and to reconcile not, not just individuals, but a group, a body of people to the Father. But, but secondly, the, the reason why the New Testament church, that this community is essential is because of this, uh, your continued faith is dependent in so many ways upon other people. Your continued faith in the Lord, your, your perseverance uh, in, in the faith is really dependent in very many ways upon God's grace that comes to us through other people. Now, we've talked a lot about this idea of persevering faith, and it's just clear uh, hopefully, if you've been here with us through much of, of the book of Hebrews, you've just seen it again and again and again, that one of the, the markers of genuine faith, one of the markers, the identifying essential markers of what real faith is, is that it continues, it perseveres. There are a couple of markers of faith. One is what James talks about, that faith without works is dead, faith that doesn't that isn't active, isn't genuine faith, James says. But, but what we've seen in the book of Hebrews is that if it's genuine faith, it will continue. It, it will not be cast aside. It will not be set aside. People will not turn away from Christ, but they will persevere. They will continue in the faith. True saving faith perseveres. And here's the important thing that you need to understand. One of the God-given means for that perseverance to occur uh, is walking in a healthy community of believers who encourages our faith, right? So if, if we must persevere in the faith, how do we do that? Well, God helps his people. God, God keeps us and he helps us to persevere. But one of the ways that God helps us to persevere is by bringing us into community with other believers who encourage us, who strengthen us, who push us forward when we're struggling in the faith. A vital ingredient in persevering is community. And that brings us to our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. The first thing that we see 
in, in this text is that the church is a place of mutual oversight. We are all pastors. Did you know that this morning, that you're a pastor? We're going to look at it in this, this text this morning, and I think it's an inescapable reality that we see in this text. The, the church is a place of mutual oversight. You see this in verse number 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That word, see to it, is, is a word that means to oversee. Uh, it, it's a word that means, uh, one person says, to look upon, to inspect, to oversee, to look after. Strong's Dictionary says that it is to look diligently. And part of this is, is this sense of almost being like a supervisor. It's sort of an authority that is given. This is a word that is used to translate the Old Testament. Uh, in Second Chronicles 32, verse 12, it says this. They're talking about repairing the temple in this context. And it says this, and the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Moriah, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. So they're rebuilding the temple and there are certain people who are giving the oversight. They're given supervision. That's the same word in that, in that verse that I just read is the same word that is translated here in verse 15. See to it. It's oversee. Pr practice oversight. Be supervisors of one another so so it has the idea of some sense of authority but but it's not just authority it's not just about being the the boss it's it's about a, a certain kind of care that is given one uh, definition kind of hints at this uh, idea of care and it says to give careful consideration to something with the implication of guarding against so so to, to have oversight isn't just merely, okay, you're in charge. No, no. The oversight is for the purpose of guarding that thing, of protecting it and, and caring for it. And, and that's one of the definitions of that word, to see to it or to oversee. It is to care for. And so here's another verse that expresses more of this idea of care. It's the same word that's used, but Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, it says, but the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. He oversees it. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. See, he's, he's overseeing it. He's caring for it. So, so it certainly in, includes this idea of guarding or caring or, or protecting. And there's an old word that used to be used when, when people talked about membership of, of the church. And, and the word is watch care. Have you ever heard that expression before? You've come under the, the watch care of the church. Well, that's a kind of an antiquated word that we don't use a whole lot anymore. Maybe some of you have never heard of it. But, but that idea is, is trying to get at this expression. When you enter into the, the body of the church, you're, you're entering into this mutual kind of oversight you're entering into this watch care there's this supervision there's this overseeing that happens and it's for the purpose of caring for your souls this is why uh, our, our church covenant covenant talks about this uh, as well uh, that that we uh, that we obligate ourselves to to watch over one another in love now the interesting thing about this word is that it really is the word that's given as one of the three titles of pastors. You know, in the New Testament, there are three titles that are given to pastors. There's pastors, which is shepherd. There are elders, which is used various places. And, and then there's this, this word overseer. If you have the King James, if you grew up reading the King James, the word overseer is the word that in the King James gets translated as bishop. It's, it's someone who has oversight. But, but this word uh, overseer that is used in Hebrews chapter 12 to look, see to it, uh, is here applied to, to everyone. But it's a word that is used for pastors. So Paul writes to the Philippians 
And he says, to all the saints of God in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The two opposites, pastors and deacons, the overseers and the deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when he's talking about the qualifications for pastors, he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, bishop, the one who cares for the body, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And the reason this this word is used and given to pastors as a title that they are overseers is because it's descriptive of the work that they do. What, what are pastors? They are those who oversee, who, who care for the body. So it's used in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes and he says, so I exhort the elders among you. There's another one of those words that titles that are given to pastor. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. That's actually the second word. That's where we get the word for pastor. So, hey, elders, I'm writing to you and I'm telling you, shepherd the flock of God. Be a shepherd over the flock of God that is among you. And then he says this, exercising oversight the identical word in our text here that it, where it says to to see to it here peter says specifically to pastors to elders hey you're to shepherd the flock of god and that means i want you to exercise oversight over the body of the church and so this is a title that's given to pastors what this means then is that you are called to do the, the, the work that pastors do. There, there is uh, uh, in this text a, a command for every member of the body to practice the, the mutual watch care or oversight uh, of one another. And again, I mentioned our church covenant earlier. This is what our church covenant says. It says, we further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love. So, so that means it isn't just the work of the pastors of someone's not here or someone's struggling with a sin or, or someone is discouraged right now. Well, they need to go to talk to the pastors or the pastors need to go and find them. Certainly that's true, but it isn't only the work of the pastors to look over and to practice oversight or watch care in the body of Christ. This, is, th this idea is, is consistent with the idea of the church in, in the New Testament. When we look there, we understand that the work that is given somewhat in some ways uniquely to pastors is not given exclusively to pastors. The work that in some ways is given uniquely to pastors, certainly they bear a, a particular burden in that work. It is not given exclusively to pastors as if, well, that's just the pastor's job. Nobody else does those kinds of things. That's what the pastor does. Certainly pastors do that. Pastors are called overseers. Pastors are to shepherd and, and, and watch over the church. But so are you. So are you. Those who hold the office of overseer are not the only ones that God expects to do overseeing. Everything that a pastor does, every member of the church should do. Is that, is that surprising to you? Everything that the pastor does uh, maybe to a fuller degree, may, maybe given more time, but everything that a pastor does, every member of the church should do. There's not a single task of pastoring, of watching over the body, that is also not a responsibility that you bear as a member. You say, well, what if someone has a problem and they need help? Well, Galatians 6.2 says that you're to bear one another's burdens. You bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the laws of the law of Christ. Well, what, if, what about if someone's cold and they're sort of drifting in, in their faith? Shouldn't the pastor go and encourage them and try to get them back in the right direction? Yes, he should. Yes, they should. But so should you. Hebrews 10, 24 says that we are to consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. He doesn't just say, hey, pastors, you stir people up to love and good works. 
hey, if someone's discouraged and drifting from the Lord, you go and encourage them. No, he says, church body, you do that. You love one another. You stir one another up. You encourage one another. You say, well, what if someone is really kind of becoming hardened in their sins and they they really need to be exhorted? Isn't that something that really only the pastor can do? Surely uh, those difficult situations are are that's when the pastor is supposed to step in. But no, Hebrews chapter three, verse 13 says, but exhort one another as long as it is called today that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of you are to exhort one another, not just the pastors. You say, yeah, well, what if somebody's struggling with some sin and they need to confess their sin and, and have someone pray for them? Well, James 5.16 says, confess your sins to the pastors. No, no. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Well, what if someone's dealing with discouragement or, or depression? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Not just pastors encourage one another. All members encourage one another. You say, yeah, but sometimes people are grieving and maybe, maybe pastors are particularly good at, at going to people who are, who are grieving. They, they've lost a loved one and pastors have been trained in, in how to do that. They know what to say to people in that situation. Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that we are to encourage one another with these words. And the words that he's talking about, uh, well, let me just read it. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So if there's someone grieving in the church, what do you do? do you, you're like, I don't know what to say to them. Yes, you do. Encourage them with the words, the words of the resurrection. Remind them. That's all I do. I go to someone who's grieving, someone who's lost a loved one. That's what Jared does. We go and we say, remember the resurrection. Remember what Jesus has accomplished. That's where your hope. Let me encourage you with that. And guess what? You are to do that. Encourage one another with those same words. You say, come on. Aren't pastors really the ones who are supposed to do the work of the ministry? Isn't that their job? Well, Ephesians 4.11 or 4.12 says that pastors and teachers were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The pastors and teachers were given and, and the gifts that God gave to the church were given so that you would be equipped to do the work of the ministry, not just pastors. The work of the ministry is not the job of a few qualified and trained people, Jared and me and now Jeffrey is, is in that process and we do the work of the ministry. No, no, no. God has given gifts to the church so that the church, so that you all would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. You say, yeah, but I think pastors have sort of a, a special knowledge. They, they know how to counsel people. I, I don't have the know-how. I, I don't have the understanding. Well, Paul said in Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all, the, all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And that word instruct is really the word uh, we, we could even translate it as counsel. You're filled with knowledge. You believers are filled with all the knowledge you need and therefore you are able to counsel other people. You're able to instruct them. You say, well, I don't know. What's well, the word of God? That, that's what I, again, I don't have some special knowledge. I take the word of God and I take the problems of people and, and I try to say, what does scripture teach about this problem that you're dealing with here? And you're able to do that. You're filled with the knowledge of God's word. And you say, well, pastors know so much scripture though. They've been trained and they've studied it a lot more. And then Paul would say to you in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You see, if you want to 
get better at this work of ministry that you are called to do, this mutual oversight, then what you need to do is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you're able to teach and admonish one another. Say, yeah, but pastors have authority and and people are supposed to submit to them uh, because of the authority and the position that they've been given. Well, Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the New Testament idea is that every member of the body should be doing the things that we say often that pastors are are to do. Yes, pastors may be especially gifted or or, or they may be uh, better trained or more qualified in, in some way, but that doesn't mean that you're not called to do it as well. Listen, there are other pastors out there that are more qualified than me. There are other pastors that have much more knowledge than than I have. There are other pastors, certainly, that are more gifted than me or or Jared, but God in his providence has placed us in this particular location with with this body. John Piper would be a much better pastor. He's more gifted, better preacher, uh, wiser than, than I am, but guess what? He can't pastor every church. God has placed me and and Jared, and now he's raising up Jeffrey to be in this position to pastor this particular church. And so it is with you. Yet, yes, maybe I've had more training and experience to help counsel other people and encourage them or watch over them in that way, but I'm not in every situation that you're in. You have particular relationships, and God has put you uh, in a place to be able to speak to people that I wouldn't be able to speak to in that situation. Listen, if God tells you that you are to oversee, then you're an overseer as well. You're an overseer. You're you're a pastor. Every member of the church, in that sense, is a pastor. Secondly, this morning, we see this mutual oversight, this every member pastoring is necessary because of our sin. Why is this necessary? Why do we need other people to watch over us? To, to, to have this supervision or this oversight? Well, the reason is because of our sin. There are three dangers that are listed in these verses, three particular sins, and, and what we really see is that all three of the sins are really one sin in, in one sense. They're, they're all essentially the same in that they are all sins that result in the same end, but they are unique in that they are slight variations in the path that they take. There there are three distinct paths to the same end. And what is that end? Well, it's the sin that's been talked about again and again in the book of Hebrews, and it's the sin of apostasy. In Hebrews, there's a very clear notion of the fact that people who profess faith in Christ, but then through neglect or a hardened rebellion and sin, do not persevere in their faith. The, the writer of Hebrews is clear that people uh, who, who fall into that category, they make a profession of faith, an outward external profession of faith, but then they do not persevere in faith. Those people will not finally be saved. And that's why we need this oversight. That's why we need this mutual watch care, because we are all prone, as the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You're prone to it. I'm prone to it. I've still got sin in my heart. You've got sin in your heart. We all need a mutual watch care and overseeing of one another that helps prevent us from drifting away from the Lord in such a way that we would come into the judgment of God. We've looked at these passages. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but but Hebrews chapter 6 is one of those passages that talks about this sin of, of falling away from the Lord. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible, he says, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You could see that again in Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. It's another passage that warns against that. Those are our warning passages. And that, that reality is what makes this mutual watch care 
a necessary thing. Because it's possible, what this is saying, for people to, in, in an outward sense, to experience some of these things, to make a profession of faith, to join the church, to, to, to appear as if they're following Christ, and, and then for sin to enter in and to harden their hearts and for them finally to turn away from the Lord and, and end up in an eternity of God's judgment. That's a possibility. And, and the, the thing that delivers us from that, uh, the, the thing that marks us out as a genuine believer is that we persevere, that we continue in our faith, that we do not abandon our faith, that we do not turn away from the Lord. The severity of this reality places a great responsibility on us then. First, you individually, you, you need to guard your own heart. You need to recognize when there's a, a temptation and when there's a sin pulling you away from the Lord. And you need to, and we talk much about those warnings, you need to take caution in that. But secondly, then, we have an obligation to help secure the continued faith of, of other members of the body. We, we have a responsibility not to guard our own, not only to guard our own hearts, but, but to watch over one another. That, that no one, we don't let anyone else slip away. We don't let anyone else drift from the Lord and abandon their faith. We have an obligation to go after them and to seek to bring them back in the way that they might be saved. We have that obligation. And we see this. I mentioned the warning that's given. In, in Hebrews 10.26, I maybe should have read it, but right before that in Hebrews 10.24, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so that is that, that encouragement for us to hey, come together as a body. Don't, don't walk away from the church. Don't, don't neglect gathering with God's people because you need to be exhorted. You need to be encouraged and you need to be stirred up in, in your faith. And you need the church to do that. We need one another. I need you. You need me. We all need each other to stir each other up. And, and the reason that we need that is that he goes on in Hebrews 10, 26 because if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. You see, in that context, the reason that we are to engage in this life of the church and, and this mutual encouragement and this mutual oversight and this mutual stirring one another up is because if we go off into a life of sin, we are going off into a life that will come under the judgment of God. And we don't want that. We don't want that for ourselves and we need to guard our own hearts. But we have an obligation to guard each other, to oversee. We have an obligation, as this verse says in, in Hebrews 12, 15, to see to it that that does not happen. See to it. It is our responsibility then. And we need to be skilled in it. What does it look like when someone drifts away from the Lord? Well, he gives us here three different sort of pathways. They all are essentially the same thing. They're all someone abandoning their faith. But, but he gives us sort of three pathways to get there. And we need to, to recognize those. We need to be able to distinguish, hey, I think this person's drifting away from the Lord. So here's the first one. The, the first sin that he warns us about is falling short of the grace of God. Falling short of the grace of God through a passive faith. Do you see this again in verse 15? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Practice this oversight. Oversee one another so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That, that word fail to obtain is a, is a word that means to fall short, to run out of, or to be lacking. One, one person says it, it means to fail in some measure to attain some state or condition. It's what the writer of Hebrews warns about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. See, there's this goal of entering into the rest, entering into heaven. And we need to, we, we need to be careful. We need to fear. We, we, need, we need to understand that there's a danger of us failing to enter into that rest. So how would we 
fall short of the grace of God? How would we fail to reach it? How would we fail to obtain the grace of God? Well, the answer given in the book of Hebrews, as we've already mentioned, is this idea of persevering faith. The person who does not persevere in their faith is a person who will not enter into his rest. It is a person who will fall short of God's grace. You see, biblical faith, we've already said this, is an act of faith. It's a, it's a persevering faith. Biblical faith strives. It strives. It, it works. It does something. If you say you have faith and there's no action behind that faith, that is not real saving faith. Biblical faith strives. That's why we said, I just read that in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1, uh, that we need to fear lest we should have failed to reach it. And he goes on and says in verse number 11 of that same chapter, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see, there's this promise of rest and, and we get there by enduring in our faith and, and therefore we need to strive to enter that rest. Biblical faith is a faith that strives. We see this also in, in verse 14. You remember we just talked about holiness, the holiness of God, and what, what does he say there? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are to strive for holiness, and there, if there is no holiness, you will not see the Lord. Why is that? Is it because we're saved by our holiness? Are we saved by our striving after holiness? No, we're saved by faith. We're saved by believing and trusting in Jesus. But faith that is genuine is a faith that is active. It's a faith that strives after the holiness of God. And if you don't have holiness in your life, verse 14 says, you will not see the Lord. Therefore, strive for holiness. And so we are called to strive. So what is it then that we're to oversee? Well, see to it that no one stops striving for the Lord, that no one stops striving to enter the rest, that, that no one stops pursuing holiness in their life. And that's one of the ways that, that people fall away. They just begin to become passive in their faith. They, they begun, begin to just become lackadaisical and, and they're not any longer pursuing holiness. They're, they're not striving after the Lord. Their faith just becomes passive. And over time, that passivity leads to a complete abandonment of faith. And you are to see to it, first of all, in your own life that that does not happen. But we have an obligation to watch over one another. So when we see brothers and sisters pulling back and becoming more and more passive in their faith, that's a warning sign. And you say, well, shouldn't the pastors go talk to them and, and exhort them and encourage them? Yes, they should. And you are the pastors. I, I should. Yes, there's a, there is an office of pastor. I don't want to act as if there is no office of pastor. There is, and I have an obligation. Jared has an obligation to do that. But you have an obligation as well to look after, to oversee. And when you see people pulling back and becoming passive in their faith, you need to be aware of that. Second, the second sin that is mentioned here is the sin of allowing, uh, allowing sin to slowly grow in your life, which ultimately produces unbelief and death. Uh, slowly allowing sin to grow in your life. So he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So this is the second thing that we need to watch out for. First, that someone would fall short of the grace of God. Second is that a, a bitter root would spring up in someone's life, and that by it many would become defiled. What is this idea of a bitter root? Well, it's not literally here, I think, speaking about bitterness. Uh, there is a sense in which we need to watch out for bitterness. It can grow in, in a person's life. But, it, but it's referring really to a root that produces bitter fruit. It's a root that, that produces something that is really bad or poisonous. It has bad results. This idea, I think, actually comes from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 29, 18. There the law is given 
And the Lord is speaking to his people after the law has been given. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, 18, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman, a clan or a tribe, whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the God. So watch out for that. He tells them in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, watch out that there's not an individual or, or a family or a whole tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord and they go to serve other gods. You all watch out for that. Same thing is true for us. We've, we've got to watch out for that happening. And then he goes on to say this, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You see that kind of turning away from the Lord. It doesn't just happen, does it? Somebody doesn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to church anymore. I, I'm not a believer anymore. I'm rejecting Christ and I'm going into a life of sin. It doesn't happen like that almost ever. What happens is that slowly over time, people begin to allow things to grow in their life. They begin to allow sinful thoughts and, and, and sinful practices to take root. And that root begins to grow. And, and, and they cultivate that root. They don't kill it. They don't destroy it. And, and instead, they let it get deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger. And finally, it bears bitter fruit. By the time you see the fruit, the consequences of it, that's the point at which someone's ready to throw away their faith. And that's what we need to watch for. That's what he's talking about here, that we would, that we would watch for those kind of things. Make sure, see to it, that, that in your own life and in the life of the body of this church, that people aren't cultivating things under the soil that are going to bear apostasy. That, that are going to finally bear a fruit that would cause them to throw away their faith. We need to watch out for those kinds of, of sins. The, the, the picture then is of a professing believer who allows sin to quietly grow under the surface until it finally produces a heart that is hardened against the Lord. And that's oftentimes when it gets exposed, right? When a person's like, I'm not coming back to church. I don't really believe anymore. Or I'm going off into this sin and I'm done with, I'm done with living that life. But, but you see, long before it gets to that point, there's a, a bitter root that's growing. And so we need to be involved in one another's lives where we can see those bitter roots growing before they produce the deadly fruit. That's what he's saying here. This is what's warned about, I think, in, in Hebrews 3.12. It says, take care, brothers. Again, you hear the mutual obligation. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, in other words, you have an obligation to one another to exhort each other not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a different analogy. It, this one isn't a root. It's the idea of something hardening, right? And, and we, we get that, right? Over time, we just become to, to harden in, in certain activities or behaviors. And if you allow sin into your heart and, and you, you allow it to begin to set up like concrete, it will harden. And so we have an obligation to one another to exhort each other every day. As long as we have this opportunity for salvation, exhort each other every day that we would not be hardened. That's what we're called to do. The third sin that we need to watch for and, and the third reason we need this mutual oversight is the sin of really trading it all away or throwing away our faith to satisfy a momentary fleshly desire to satisfy a momentary fleshly desire. You see this in, in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's the first one, don't fall short of the grace of God. Secondly, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many come, become defiled. And then thirdly, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterwards he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So this is the sin of throwing away your faith for that momentary indulgence in some fleshly 
appetite. He mentioned here sexual immorality. He talks about Esau as sort of an example of this. And when we look at the life of Esau, we don't think we don't find any particular sexual immorality. Esau did marry. I believe they were Hittite women and his wife did not like the, his, his uh, mother and father did not like these women. Uh, they were not godly people. So perhaps that's what it's talking about. But then he says, don't be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And that word unholy really, I think, gets to the idea of what's being warned against here. And I think sexual immorality is one example of that kind of sin. So to be unholy, as it's used here, means to be profane, to be godless, really to be irreligious. It's the idea of somebody who has no moral restraint. There's nothing sacred. There's there's nothing off the table. There's absolutely no fear of God, no, no reverence. And Esau is an example of that. Esau is the perfect example of that because he's someone who took something which was sacred and holy, this birthright of being part of God's people, and, and he threw it all away because he was hungry. Remember, do you remember the story of, of Esau? He's been out hunting in, in the wilderness and he comes in and he's, he's starving, he's so hungry, and, he, and Jacob has, has, has made some food there and uh, so, some porridge, and, he, and Esau's like, I, I'm, I'm about ready to die, give this to me, and, and Jacob says, look, if you'll trade me your birthright, I'll give you a bowl of soup, right? And, and Esau's like, yeah, I don't care about the birthright. I don't care about the promises that God have given to his people. None of that really is that significant to me. Just give me some food. I've got a fleshly appetite and it needs to be met right now. I want it and I want it now and I don't care about any consequences. There's nothing sacred. There's nothing important about that. Give me the satisfaction of eating some food right now. Matthew Henry says about this sin, he says this, though he was born within the pale of the church, that is God's people. Talking about Esau, he was born in the pale of God's people. And having the birthright as the eldest son, and so entitled to the privilege of being prophet, priest, and king in his family, he was so profane as to despise these sacred privileges and to sell his birthright for a morsel of meat. The great sin was that he thought so little of the blessing of being part of God's people that he was willing to trade it all away for some momentary satisfaction to satisfy this fleshly appetite. He didn't look beyond the immediate moment of, of gratification. That's all he looked at, this moment of gratification. I've got to satisfy my appetite. He didn't think about anything beyond that. And that's the danger that we need to guard against. There's a real danger for all of us to, in the moment of temptation, be thinking about some urge or, or some, some physical, fleshly appetite that we have and, and to sort of forget about all of the blessings of being part of God's people, to forget about all the promises that God gives to his people and to be willing to just throw it aside so that we can indulge in this fleshly appetite Donald Guthrie says of Esau, he has become a type of all who put material and sensual advantages before their spiritual heritage. And we're all tempted to do that. Again, Matthew Henry says this, he, is, he profanely despised and sold the birthright and all the advantages attending to it. So do apostates who to enjoy sensual ease and pleasure Though they bore the character of the children of God and had a visible right to the blessing and inheritance, give up all pretensions thereto. Apostasy from Christ is the fruit of preferring the gratification of the flesh to the blessing of God and the heavenly inheritance. Listen to that again. It's, it's the fruit of preferring the gratification of the flesh to the blessing of God and the heavenly inheritance. And we need to see to it, not only in our own lives individually, but we need to watch over one another that no one does anything so stupid. And people do it all the time. They, they, they think, I'm just going to give that up. There's this woman, she looks so attractive. I'm going to just cast away everything. 
don't worry about God's blessing on my family. Don't worry about my marriage. Don't, don't worry about any of, of what it means to be a part of the people of God. This woman is attractive, and I want to satisfy this urge now with this woman, and I'm willing to throw it all away to have this momentary gratification. And I think that's why he mentions here sexual immorality, because that's really one of the, the, the chief sins that where we would be tempted to do that. And we've got to guard one another from doing that. We've got to watch over one another. Finally, we'll close with this this morning. We'll bring this to a close. This mutual oversight, this every member pastoring, it can be done. Maybe you're hearing that this morning. You think, well, I know I need to watch over myself, but I don't know about this idea of all of us being pastors and, and watching over one another and like really being involved in people's lives in such a way that we know the sin that they're struggling with. Uh, maybe it's a good idea, but it's just too messy. It's too time-consuming. Uh, it's really too risky because people might gossip about you and slander you. So let me just say as we close this morning, I think there are a few things that have to be present for that to really become a reality. I was encouraged this week, we're reading a book of, uh, by Paul Tripp, and he talks about kind of some accountability in, in biblical community. And he points out some things that are, are important that need to be there if that kind of accountability is going to be there. The first is genuine love. We need to have genuine love for each other. The reason most churches do not practice this kind of honest every member pastoring is because it's messy. It is time consuming. It's draining. It's easier just to be disconnected, isn't it? Isn't it just a lot easier just to come to church, sit in your pew, hear the message, deal with it personally, kind of stay disconnected from everybody else and go out and do your own thing. That's easier, right? But, but love would compel us, if we really care about each other, love would compel us to get into the mess, to take on the risk, to be willing to give up my time so I can serve others, to, to get into your problems even though they're really draining and it's, it, it's difficult for me to wade through all of those things. But if I love you, I'm going to do that, right? And it's not just me and the other pastors. All of us should have that kind of mutual love for one another. Again, remember what he said in Galatians, what we read earlier? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you know what the law of Christ is? The law of Christ that Paul's talking about is the command to love one another. So when I bear your burdens and when you bear other people's burdens, you are fulfilling the command to love one another. The second thing that we need to have is humility. I need to be willing to be seen as needy. You know, if, if I'm going to enter into that kind of community, that kind of mutual oversight, I have to be willing to be able to be corrected and to be reproved. That's a hard thing. Sometimes we don't want that, right? I don't want anybody else pastoring me. I don't want anyone else exhorting me and, and getting in to see where my sin is and, and trying to point out roots of bitterness in my life. I, I don't want that. The reason you don't want that is because you're proud. I don't want anybody to think I've got sin or, or I've got problems. So you've got to be willing to humble yourself and recognize I am needy. I need other people to hold me accountable. We need humility. We need to be willing, as Paul says in Ephesians that I quoted earlier, to submit to one another. The third thing that we need for this kind of community to happen is we need honesty. I need to stop trying to hide my sin, to put on my Sunday best, act like everything's together, like I'm, I'm perfect and I've got this perfect marriage and this perfect family and I don't have any struggles and, and everybody's going to get that Sunday best kind of picture. We need to abandon that if we're going to go after this kind of community that we're talking about here. And we've got to be honest. Again, in the book of James, we've got to be willing to confess your sins to one another. That requires honesty. Confess your sins, not just to the pastor, but, but to other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who can pray with you and encourage you. And then we need grace. We need grace. We have to be willing to extend grace. People often are not willing to open up and, and be pastored by other people because there's this fear of, of self-righteous condemnation. You know, if I confess my sins, they're going to think I'm a horrible person. Well, praise God, the gospel says we're all horrible people. 
and, and what we need is grace. I'm a horrible person. If, if all of my sin was exposed to you, you, you would be appalled by it. And I think likewise would, would be the case, right? And so what we need to do is be willing to extend grace to one another, not self-righteous condemnation. If we're going to have this every member kind of pastoring done, we've got to be willing to extend grace. We've got to be willing to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So this morning, as we think about this, let me just ask you, first of all, are you actively involved in the life of the congregation in such a way that you're being pastored by others? That's our goal. That's what we want is for every member to be pastored not only by the pastors, but by one another. That that requires that you enter into the life of the church. It, it involves giving up time. It involves being involved in, in certain groups where that kind of thing can happen or, or opening up with others. Are you involved in the life of the church in such a way that other people can pastor you? And then secondly, are you providing that kind of oversight for others? You see, church is not just about what you get out of it, but you're called to help other people. You are called to, to help shepherd and pastor one another. And so are, are you doing that for others? You, you might say, well, well, I don't feel like I really need that, so I'm not going to get into the, those kind of groups where every member pastoring could happen. Well, if, if you don't feel like you need it, number one, you may be too proud to recognize your own sin and your own neediness. But, but secondly, uh, praise the Lord if you're in a place of spiritual maturity, but you do have an obligation then to help pastor and shepherd others. And so are you providing that kind of oversight for one another. We are all overseers. Every member is called to pastor one another. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray you would, Lord, in your grace, uh, cultivate and develop this kind of community in, in, in the life of this church. We recognize and we just confess that we're not there, Lord. Uh, there are many ways in, in which we have not arrived. That, to say that this is our mission and that this is what we value is not to say that we exhibit this kind of community perfectly, but Lord, we would desire it. We, we want it. We pray that you would help it become reality in the life of this church. We pray, Lord, for those who are away from the church, for those who are growing in distance, that you would draw them back in uh, and help them uh, to both be pastored by others and to be willing to help pastor one another. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.